A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Places where terrible things have happened often become defined by those events. They're seen as blighted somehow, or unholy. The official term is stigmatized property. After the body is removed and the crime scene lifted, their future lies down one of only a few paths. The house is sold off for a fraction of the price to someone prepared to overlook whatever sense of the horror may linger there. Or it's left vacant and allowed to rot. Sometimes it's bulldozed and paved over with something new. But after Sophie Toscan de Plantier was murdered in West Cork, her farmhouse wasn't demolished or sold off or abandoned. She, she, she fell in love with this stone. Instead, it went to her son, Pierre-Louis. And so we are very happy because, you know, it's a country house, so I just come here like two, three, four times a year. Late summer 2016, Pierre-Louis was in West Cork on holiday, with his wife Aurelia and their two small children, he invited us up to the farmhouse. But we are trained to keep it white. Everything is white. We pictured the house as the guards had described it and wondered whether it would feel stuck in that terrible moment. But it wasn't stuck at all. Sophie's grandkids were running around upstairs. There were breakfast plates stacked next to the sink. It's a very cool house. Because I, I, not, he showed us around, pointing out things he remembered bringing over from France with his mum. The thick ceramic plates, the kitchen dresser. He said that came over tied to the roof of the car. You know, I guess now you use the place with your wife and your children, and do you have a kind of conversation about making it your own, but also keeping it like it was? Yes. A balance. Yes, it's a balance. When Sophie died, her husband Daniel had wanted to sell the house. It's what most people would do. There was no family here, no connection with Ireland. But Pierre-Louis' father said they shouldn't rush anything. So they waited a couple years. Then Pierre-Louis and his father made a trip to the house together. That was a very strange uh, trip, but we felt good in here. And, you know, I was with my father in my mother's house. The divorce before I was one, so for the first time we were together, in a sense. There are signs of Sophie everywhere. Her duffel coat still hangs on the back door on a hook next to her apron. There, there is. From my mother, the, the coat, we leave it here, because mm. it's why, why we should have taken it off, you know? It's not a museum, well, it's not a pelerinage. Or it's, it's, it's not a, a pilgrimage, he says. But it is something more than just holidaying. It's about looking for answers. Pierre-Louis told us that just a couple of years ago, he walked into Skull Garda Station to ask them why, in so many years, they'd never wanted to speak to him. He was 15 when his mother died, 
and he'd been to West Cork with Sophie more than anyone. Might he not have been a useful person to speak to? Pierre-Louis told us he stands sometimes at the window of his house, looking out across the valley towards a cottage three miles east, where he knows Ian Bailey is just going about his life. He can't understand why Ian has been a suspect for 20 years, but never faced trial. I met him once in the supermarket. Pierre-Louis didn't meet Ian. He just caught sight of him in the aisle of the Skull grocery store. He didn't recognize me, but... It was like a, a, a freezing shower. And I have a bad evening, and so we, we, we fly back to Paris the next day. But he kept returning to West Cork. And on this trip, at the end of summer 2016, Pierre-Louis arrived just as news broke of a significant development in France. Pierre-Louis had known for weeks, but Ian Bailey learned that day that France had taken matters into its own hands and would be charging him with murder. This is West Cork, an Audible original series. I'm Jennifer Ford. I'm Sam Bungie, and this is episode 13, An Intimate Conviction. story this morning that's dominating all of the newspapers and indeed uh, radio news and television as well, of course, is the latest development in the uh, life and times of Ian Bailey. Back on December 23rd, 1996, Sophie Tuscan... No, I'll just try his office. Now, Are you recording? Oh, uh, bonjour. Um, je m'appelle uh, Ian Bailey uh, from Ireland. It was now a few days after the news broke, but Ian was still largely in the dark about what exactly was happening, and he was trying to make contact with someone who might be able to explain things to him. Uh, well, somebody's just put me on hold, and... Hello? Hello? A few years ago, Ian was connected with a French lawyer by a legal aid service, just in case something like this should happen. Hello? Hi? Um, I... My... my... Oh, right. I, I don't think we've spoken before, have we? <laughs> um, good things, I hope. Um, hi. So, yeah, I, the reason I was calling was you may have heard that the decision has been taken in France to prosecute me for the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. In fact, I'm receiving no information apart from that given to me by the media. Here's what's happening to Ian. A judge in France has drawn up an indictment against him for voluntary homicide. Even though Ian's not French, the crime didn't happen in France. The French have a particular law that allows them to do this. It dates back to Napoleon, when France had colonies all around the world. If something happened to a French citizen abroad, France didn't want to have to rely on another country's legal system. They wanted to be able to handle it themselves. And I wanted to establish if and when I am, if I have the right of appeal. French authorities have issued a warrant for Ian's arrest, a European arrest warrant, which, if executed, will be served by the Irish guards, and Ian may then be extradited to France to face trial. That's uh, good, very good. Thank you very much for that, and um, merci beaucoup. OK, au revoir. Thank you. Well, there we are. Um, apparently, I do have a right of appeal. 
So this is 20 years after this began, with everything that's happened, finally charged this is, Yes, this is the crystallization of that 20-year um, period. But it also sounds like it doesn't hit you on a gut level. No, no, because I've learned how to override um, uh, what might be called normal human emotional responses. The news didn't come out of nowhere for Ian. He knows that Sophie's family have been pushing for something like this for years. I've said this, I'm very sympathetic to them. I think that they've had a rotten deal. I know they think I did it, I can't do anything about that. I feel really sorry for, for the family. And I think he, I mean, he, he seems to be handling it reasonably well. He's talking about Pierre-Louis. Ian knows he comes here on holiday. Have you ever seen him out? Well, I saw him out there a year or so ago in Bantry. He was in Bantry on a Friday with his family. I heard somebody calling the name Pierre-Louis, Pierre-Louis, in the street. And I recognised him. And what did you do? Well, I didn't do anything. I just, I merely I observed him. But the fact that Ian catches sight of Pierre-Louis at the market is maybe a reminder that the French aren't going to go away. The French authorities have come for Ian before. It was back in 2010. Irish guards showed up at the prairie one night with a European arrest warrant and took Ian to jail in Dublin. The warrant was initially upheld by the Irish courts and only blocked on appeal by Ireland's Supreme Court. And even though Ireland ultimately ruled against it, that arrest warrant might still apply elsewhere in Europe. Which means that since 2010, Ian hasn't left the country for fear of being picked up and sent to France. He's not a prisoner, but he's stuck in Ireland. When his mother died, Ian couldn't go home to the funeral in England. Just last summer, he couldn't go to his niece's wedding. The Irish Supreme Court had ruled against that warrant, in part because the French said they wanted to bring Ian to France for questioning. And Ireland doesn't extradite people just for questioning. Now, though, France was ready to charge. So why were the French pursuing a case against Ian that Ireland had all but dropped? The story of how all this happened began with Sophie's uncle, Jean-Pierre Gazot. I will try okay. to speak uh, clearly with my French accent. <laughs> Jean-Pierre is a world-renowned theoretical physicist and he's the president of a group called the Association for the Truth about Sophie Toscan de Plantier, ASOF. The group has around 200 members. We joined them for their yearly gathering in Paris in the winter of 2016. It's sort of amazing that people have really rallied round this cause. And these yes, just, absolutely. Not just family. Not just family. I think the majority of them didn't know Sophie. Uh, just they were concerned by what happened. After 20 years, we are still waiting for truth and justice. For years after Sophie's death, her family had faith that Ireland was going to bring her killer to justice. Early on, they were promised Ian Bailey, and they watched from Paris as the saga unfolded. Ian's arrest, his second arrest, all the stuff that came out at the libel trial, they couldn't understand how it all came to nothing. To them, it seemed that the Irish system had let Ian slip away. Sophie's parents, Georges and Marguerite, wrote to the DPP asking why the case had stalled. They received a short reply, just explaining that the DPP doesn't make their reasons public. Then one day, Jean-Pierre had a thought. On an aeroplane, 
he picked up a copy of the French gossip magazine Paris Match. It's funny to picture this quantum physicist leafing through the pages, like Stephen Hawking watching an episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. He was interested, though, in an interview with Daniel Toscan de Plantier's new wife. Jean-Pierre says he remembers being struck by how unfair it all seemed, that for everyone else life just carried on, when Sophie's life had been cut short, that her family were living with this constant weight, perpetual mourning without any action. She was my first niece. She was like you know, my little sister because uh, I even I even taught Sophie when she was one to to walk. You know, <laughs> so I uh, I really wanted to do something. Jean Pierre assembled a team, family and friends who got to work understanding the case in Ireland. He made research trips to West Cork, speaking to locals, timing the route from Ian's house to Sophie's by foot measuring the light cast across the landscape by a full moon. The group has produced a book on the case. They hold press conferences and lobby politicians. And back in 2007, they succeeded in the first part of their mission, to have the case reactivated in France. Back in Ireland, this has been misinterpreted by some like the family was only managing to drive the case in France because they're well-connected, and Sophie was the wife of a famous movie producer. But this is just how the French system works. In France, you can combine civil and criminal actions. The victims of crimes act as plaintiffs. The French call it the parti civile. And so Sophie's family have become the parti civile in a reinvestigation of Sophie's murder. They work with the investigating magistrate, they can ask them questions, even direct them down certain lines of inquiry. The magistrate had Sophie's body exhumed and another autopsy performed. And twice, a team of French detectives travelled to Ireland to speak to witnesses. As Sophie's uncle, Jean-Pierre is a party civil. He says they've only ever had one objective, to get Ian Bailey in front of a judge. We want to have a real uh, trial, you know, a suspect like uh, Mr Bailey as to answer to some questions. Yeah, a real fair trial. Lara Marlowe, who's covered the case since the beginning as Paris correspondent for the Irish Times, says that the widely held view in France is that the family has been let down by Ireland. There's no credibility, no faith whatsoever. There's immense bitterness that this crime has gone unpunished and that the Irish don't seem to care. The French just simply cannot understand why Ian Bailey was never prosecuted for the murder of Sophie Toscan du Plantier. I think this case is the proof that we don't have the same conception of justice. Thierry Levesque covered the case as legal correspondent for Reuters. You know, so from the French point of view, uh, we can see the police or the judicial methods in Ireland a, a bit naive. Naive. Levesque says the view in France is that the Irish system is too soft. This six hours or two times six hours police custody is just a joke. How can you obtain any, anything from a suspect? Like uh, taking a cup of tea with him, it's not, uh, it's not serious. You know, you must have uh, um, uh, sometimes rough methods to uh, conclude uh, criminal investigations. Because you can notice that Bailey in the police uh, custody... He has contradicted himself. So I think if he would have been quizzed by French police for two days, 
You know, perhaps at the end he would have admitted uh, something else. Still, Levesque explained that in France you don't need a confession or a smoking gun to prosecute. He said that the French system is geared towards putting suspects on trial. I think no system eliminates completely the risk of a judicial mistake. But uh, uh, I think at least in the French system you can put someone in front of what is accused, you know, mm. in a public trial. James Hamilton, the retired Irish director of public prosecutions, explained why he doesn't see things that way. It is a very heavy thing to charge somebody with an offence. It's something you don't do lightly. Sometimes people say, well, why don't you just run the case to the court and let the court decide? We've always taken the view that would be quite an irresponsible thing to do, to put a citizen through the ordeal of a trial merely so that public curiosity could be satisfied, and because that's what it would amount to. So essentially, the French decided to go around the Irish legal system and apply their own thinking to the case. When Hamilton caught wind of this, he was not best pleased. To have the French come in and try to prosecute a crime committed in Ireland when Ireland has already ruled that there is no case, Hamilton thought it was outrageous. And on top of that, according to Hamilton, the French investigators who travelled to Ireland to interview witnesses never even made contact with his office when they were in the country. To him, this was the greatest offence. Not a phone call, not a letter, nothing. To be quite frank, I think it's quite extraordinary. That's a very mild word and I won't say any more than that. It shows a contempt for the office of the DPP, in my view. It shows an arrogance and a contempt. French administration is extremely difficult to deal with. They're uncompromising. Everything's got to be their way. They don't understand that the rest of the world is not France. Lara Marlowe, the Irish Times reporter in Paris. I think on the part of the Irish, in fact, I've seen a quote by Frank Buttermer, uh, Bailey's lawyer, uh, they feel that the French are meddling in, in their affairs and how, how dare these, these nervy, uh, arrogant Frenchmen come and tell us how we should run our justice system. Don't talk to me about the bloody French. You know what I mean? I mean, just don't talk to me about those people. Frank Buttermer, Ian's lawyer, says that if the French are expecting his client to actually turn up to face trial in France, they can think again. The French go around there saying, oh, he should come to trial to France, you know, to establish his innocence. What kind of errant nonsense is that? You, you don't have to establish your innocence. You are innocent. There is a presumption. That's our, our law. I actually believe it's the, the law over there, but I really can't quite follow it. I mean, they're now proposing to put him on trial, as I understand it, for an offence for which he couldn't be tried in Ireland. I mean, the French might say uh, whatever about your uh, problems over in Ireland with your, the way your police have investigated things, but we've done our own investigation at this point. You're completely wrong. It was acknowledged on the record that there is no new evidence in respect of the so-called French investigation. They've come up with nothing. Absolute squat. The French indictment against Ian runs to 46 pages. Reading through it, it seems to largely rely on the findings of the Irish guards, and it includes evidence which in Ireland has since been withdrawn, like Marie Farrell's original statements identifying Ian as the man in the long black coat, apparently putting her subsequent reversal down to witness tampering by Ian, or like the West Cork photographer who gave several statements to the guards that he had developed photographs for a man he later identified as Ian Bailey. He said the photograph seemed to show the dead body of a woman in what looked like the scene of Sophie's murder. 
He since withdrew his statements, but the French indictment still cites them as evidence. There are nuggets of what could be new information. The indictment includes a claim by Sophie's cousin made in 2008 to French investigators that a few days before that final trip to West Cork, Sophie got a call to her office in Paris from a man who lived near her holiday home in West Cork. He told her that he was an independent journalist and writer and was requesting a meeting for cultural reasons. According to the statement, Sophie had been surprised by the call and the fact that the man wouldn't tell her how he'd got her number. Former DPP James Hamilton told us that you'd really struggle to introduce this as evidence in an Irish criminal court. It's hearsay, it's quoting a dead person who can't be questioned, and it's of course not proof that it was Ian who called Sophie. Ian recently told a reporter that it was a completely erroneous suggestion with no basis in fact. But France has different rules. Call your next star witness, you know what I mean? What a farce. But anyway, I hope they never catch me out there. The thing is, they don't have to catch Ian out there. The French plan to hold a trial, whether or not he shows up. Even if they don't manage to extradite Ian, there'll be a trial in absentia, without Ian present. If you're looking for how this all might play out for Ian, there's a previous French case that mirrors Ian's odd circumstances. A 14-year-old French girl was found dead while on holiday with her mother and stepfather in Germany. Her father, back in France, suspected the stepfather, a German doctor, Germany held an inquest but exonerated the doctor. France tried in vain to extradite and eventually held a trial themselves in absentia, convicting the stepfather. Then the victim's father took things into his own hands. He hired kidnappers. He went right up to the suspect in the street, punched him in the face and wrestled him into the back of a car. He was driven across the border into France, tied up and gagged and left in a town courtyard for the police to find. Once in France, the doctor was retried and found guilty. He's now in prison there. I'm relaxed but alert. I'm listening to the sound of cars travelling down the lane. And it's the door. It's, you know, if a car stops outside and I hear a, a door open and shut. It's six years since a car came down the drive to deliver the last arrest warrant. Now there's the dread of knowing they could come again. It's like sitting on the edge of a cliff, really. Life is just sitting on the edge of a cliff. It goes round in cycles, but the the, the immediate horror of being carted off to France has not gone. It's just absolutely nauseating. Jules spoke to us after the Skull Sunday market a few days after the news broke of the indictment. It's, it's like a replay of old emotions, except that it, it's new again and it brings it all back. And you feel, I feel exhausted, absolutely emotionally drained right now. But in moments like this and in moments when you know that this whole thing, you know, could once again turn your life upside down, do you ever think, you know... This is not my fight. I can just go off and I can live my own life. It doesn't have to be your fight. This not is Ian's at all. fight. If, if, if you're in a partnership with someone that you've been with that long, you, you love them because you've been, you know, the time has tested it and you don't just walk out on somebody because they're being wrongly accused of something. It's outrageous being accused of something you haven't done. 
I mean, Ian would never have gone... We'd have never gone through all those court cases if he'd been guilty. What guilty person would have put themselves through that? You know, were you worried about doing the market today? Has it changed things? Not at all. No, no, no. Not at all. No. You, You just get on with life and hold your head up. Nothing to be ashamed of. You've done nothing wrong. Why should you? Just because the press or the French or somebody says you've done something, you don't go down with that. You've got to fight it. I like lemon in my tea. I, I do pints of it. On, I, I'll probably have about three or four pints of tea a day. We spent a lot of time with Ian after the announcement, and we felt like we were seeing for ourselves something we'd heard from people who'd known Ian for many years, that in extraordinary situations, he responds in ways that can be difficult to wrap your head around. Unlike Jules, he seemed excited by it all. I'm rambling all over the show because I feel like I'm on holiday and relaxed. For Jules, the news raised the spectre of the thing she most feared. But with Ian, a weight was lifting off him. The worst thing for Ian was the open-endedness of it all. Finally, this may at least bring some resolution. You know, it's a, it, I don't know, it's, you know, it's a sort of lifting of fear, I suppose. It's really strange. I, I probably need to be psychoanalyzed at this juncture. The picture you get from Jules is that they stand in the market, defiant against pointing fingers and whispered accusations. But Ian doesn't see it like that. The thing has shifted 180 degrees from, say, a point 20 years ago. I've become a lot more comfortable within my own being, and I, I'm, and I think Jules as well. So that we're, we're, we feel more, oh, normal. I suppose you might say, just ordinary and normal. And um, because this is such a high-profile case, and because we're quite a high-profile couple. Everybody seems to know who we are. People will come across and be very, very sympathetic and supportive, which is lovely and wonderful and very sort of healing. He says there's been a total change in the public's attitude towards them. Ian says he regularly gets prayer cards in the post that are meant as messages of support and that strangers approach him in the street on an almost daily basis. Over the years, Ian has gone from Beast Bailey to victim of the state in a recent interview in a music magazine. Developments in the case, a run of Garda corruption scandals, and the perceived arrogance of the French have made people more sympathetic. For instance, if you look at the local newspaper here in West Court, the Southern Star, I think I have a copy of it here. If you look at the local newspaper, the headline here on the front page, and I mean, this is all over West Cork and throughout Ireland, Ian Bailey is living in an open prison. And so it's, you see, that all has an impact on then people's reactions. And there's a photograph of me there, taken surreptitiously at Bantry Market the previous week. Did you not know that was being taken, that photo? Not at that particular moment in time. Ian said he didn't know that that photograph was being taken, but he did arrange for a photographer to be there that day. Choreographing a photo opportunity was not beneath him. It's best with the media, always to, I mean, I know, because, you know, I mean, you know, my extraordinary life, I've had it from both sides. I've been a top reporter, bete noir, demonised villain and all sorts, and that you're always best dealing with the media. 
because they won't go away. He was always asking us to go and record him down at the market because he seemed to like the spectacle of it. Just like his days up in court, the suits, the hairspray, the photo ops, Ian thinks he and his lawyer Frank Buttermer are a good team when it comes to all of this. <laughs> it's worse than I am. Um, no, he's, he's a media whore altogether, but that's good from our point of view. I just know the way he behaves. He'll be behaving one way, shall we say, appropriately and politely. And then the moment there's cameras on him, or he's, he changes into a, a slot. <laughs> yeah. It seems like you like that side of things. I'm not going to say this on for you on record, no, because, uh, you know, that could be held against me, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, yeah. I mean, no, it's just something that happens. But I am, you know, at the end of the day, I don't forget, I am an old news hound. You, you never lose that. He may be exaggerating for effect about this new wave of support, but this is who he sees himself as now, as someone on a public campaign against Garda and Justice. For people in West Cork, the murder that changed the character of their peaceful home has become about something completely different. It reached a point where it became no longer about the horrible story of a woman losing her life, but this extended story of this man. Nadine O'Regan, whose dad ran the local paper. You could argue that he deserved to sort of clear his good name and all that kind of thing, but personally, whether it was his actions or the actions of the newspapers in carrying such extensive coverage or the way it dragged on, I just remember reading some of the coverage and thinking, like, you know, regardless of guilt or innocence, this guy just is relishing the spotlight. It's something that Sophie's husband, Daniel Toscan de Plantier, commented on in the years after the murder. In an interview with Le Figaro newspaper, Daniel said were he in Ian's shoes, he would have run away and changed his name. Instead, Ian had stayed put and become famous. He has this incredible new job now, Daniel said. I am not the murderer of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. And this is why some in West Cork still find the notion of Ian as a victim hard to stomach. Ian says being a suspect put his life on hold. But local people remember what that life was. Ian had been drifting without anything really taking root. And he lost his career. He didn't have a career. It's bullshit. That's Tom Quinn, the house painter. It's absolute and utter bullshit. The only life he's got is the life that he's got out of the death of Mrs. fucking the Plantier. <laughs> no, but it's true, Kerry. There's nothing else. He had nothing when he came here. He came with nothing and Jules supported him and promoted him. She presented him to us as a poet first and a journalist later. Yeah? It was Jules's notion of him we had to live with. What's more, they found Ian's behaviour during the investigation unforgivable. Here's Pete Balecki. You keep putting yourself in the frame. You keep shoving yourself in their faces. Well, they're going to grab onto you, aren't they? They're going to grab onto you. You felt he was sort of putting himself in the middle of it all. Well, that's one of the theories, isn't it? The other one is that he actually did it. You know, either way, he's the centre of attention now, isn't he? Everybody's looking at him. In the aftermath of the murder, I just kept having this feeling that he could potentially be that person who 
was so in love with the idea of being talked about that it overrode his understanding of what was actually happening and that he downplayed in his own mind the hazards that it was also placing him in. There was something about the the lure of the spotlight that meant that he could potentially have said things that were vague or misleading or suggestive. To Ian, this all seems hugely unfair. He says no one could really know how they'd behave in his position. And But like you were saying earlier on, that, you know, you've been playful with the media and you've learned the hard way. Um, I think, you know, you've definitely, you've said stuff over the years, you've been flippant with uh, members of the community, all of which which have kind of contributed to the fact that, you know, you've been a person of interest. Do you feel any responsibility for the situation now? No, 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 I don't. I do feel a responsibility for, for my role and what I can do within the position that we're given. Do you feel guilty about putting Jules through this? No, because I'm not putting Jules through this. Other people have put us both through this. How could I feel guilty about that? This has got nothing to do with me. What crime exactly are people accusing Ian of anyway? Was Ian being punished for being the brash Englishman, holding a mirror up to the other blow-ins, who'd also descended on this place and appropriated the culture? John Montague and Elizabeth Wassell, the poet and novelist who tried to mentor Ian, worried about that. Well, Ian did and does have friends, but some of us did take a, against him. And I think especially... There is a community of hard-working artists, potters, sculptors, painters, and his grandiosity got their hackles up. It's as though long ago Ian was cast as the villain, and many people are still unwilling to see him any differently. I think it's important that the community look at itself and ask, I mean, do we want to convict him for a crime because we find him obnoxious and tiresome? Because he's a bad poet. Or because he's a bad poet? And Shakespeare says that yeah, in, in Julius Caesar. In Shakespeare's... Julius Caesar, the mob pursues a man it believes a sin of the politician, shouting, tear him to pieces, he's a conspirator. When he protests that he is not sin of the politician, but sin of the poet, the mob responds, tear him for his bad verses, tear him for his bad verses. Elizabeth is quoting here from a piece she and John wrote together for The New Yorker about their time with Ian. Were we to hang Ian Bailey for banging the Bowron and reciting his own poems, he deliberately kept much of his past in shadow but his show of social aplomb had often seemed to be a defence against loneliness. Might it not be something of our own insecurity that we recognised in his social swagger and were unable to forgive? In an Irish criminal court, guilt must be established beyond a reasonable doubt. In France, they have a different phrase. The jury are asked to decide a case based on an intimate conviction. What do you feel in your heart about a person's guilt? The differences between the systems have been exaggerated by those looking at the case. But it does appear that France really is taking Ian to trial on evidence that in Ireland wasn't strong enough to put to a jury. We've gone back and forth on the whole thing and felt the satisfaction that comes with a sense of certainty. But it's hard to hold on to. We've ended up here, three years later, without anything but doubt. For West Cork and for Sophie's family, perhaps more terrifying than the possibility that Ian Bailey committed this murder and got away with it, is the prospect that he didn't. 
that it was someone else who managed to carry out this horrific crime and then disappear into the night, spotted afterwards just once by the roadside in the headlights of a passing car. Where do you even start with that? As the travel agent said, it'd be like looking for a ghost. The French arrest warrant Ian was waiting for did arrive in early March 2017. Two guards hand-delivered the papers to the prairie one afternoon. But Ian's lawyers negotiated that he be arrested by appointment with a minimum of fuss at Dublin Criminal Court. Ian rented an apartment in Dublin for the occasion. Nervous, go, go, go. Follow Jules. Now, keys, we've got keys, we've got wallets. Have I got a wallet on me? Yeah, got it, got it, got it, got it. Out. Go. But on the morning of the arrest, instead of getting ready for court, Ian had been doing an interview with a film director, reading him his new poetry. He seemed less like a hunted man and more like a movie star on a press junket, which meant that he was now running late. He was due to be arrested at 10 a.m. It was 9.45, and he and Jules were still in the apartment lift. So, darling, fear not. Jelly on the inside, granite on the out. No, actually, we're handling this an awful lot better than we've almost likely been able to hope to handle it. Well, you've just got to do it and get it out of the way. Our allotted time with Ian came on the way to court. We just had to find a taxi. Don't worry, just calm down, otherwise you'll make me nervous. But they can't start without me. I'll get in with you. Yeah. Right, I'm just recording now, is that all right? Do you know who this guy is? Well, who doesn't around the time if you're looking at TV? If you're looking at TV and listening to the news, who wouldn't know? You know what I mean? So what, what are you expecting when you get there? Oh, I, I'd expect there to be a real throng of media, uh, a lot of cameras. Ian told us how he expected the arrest to go. He'd be handcuffed on the steps of the courthouse in front of a phalanx of photographers. He had it choreographed, down to carrying his own volume of poetry. He said he might as well milk it. And he seemed excited. So we'll hope to have all of this done and dusted by about one, I'm guessing about one o'clock. Hopefully I'll get bail, and then we'll go for a little bit of light lunch. I guess you're not a flight risk, right? That's, the, that's one of yeah, the Yeah, do you know, I, I, my wings have been clipped a long time ago. But there was heavy traffic. Ian's lawyer, Frank Buttimer, was already at the courthouse and had been texting Ian to find out where he was. Hi. Yeah, just, I, I'm about five minutes away, maybe four minutes, OK? Four minutes away. But they can't start without me, don't worry. In fact, things would start without Ian. While he was still in the cab, the decision was made that he wouldn't be arrested on the courthouse steps. Instead, they'd do the formalities quietly, inside. Ian would be genuinely upset that they took away his moment. Hi, I'm about 30 seconds away from the court. I, look, I'm 30 seconds away. We've got court and traffic. I'm on my way. Calm down, Frank. Calm down. So I'm there. You can see me now arriving. Fucker. He's doing one of those things he did in that thing. Yeah, he will. He's not willing. I don't like it. After that call, the atmosphere in the car was suddenly thick. So what will you do? You'll just 
It was at this point Ian realised that Jennifer, six months pregnant, was sitting in the way between him and his speedy exit from the taxi and warned her she'd have to be nimble. Okay, so you're getting out that side, so you, you, you better be out of my way and when we come to move. Back. No, now, can you could you go up onto that bit? Can you now stay in the car? Don't go. Could you pull up there by the WL lines or? Yeah, well, I think you'd be better off sneaking in there. No, we're not sneaking in. Oh yeah, I think you might be right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, out, 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 go, out, go, out, go, out, go, out, go. That was the last time we saw Ian, but we've kept in touch by phone from London. In downtime between working on his appeal against the French indictment, Ian joined a choir and started work on a new collection of poetry. For the first time since the murder, he says he's doing things that make him feel normal, like an ordinary person again. He went to a popular music festival outside Dublin to a special event organised by a sympathetic music magazine to officially launch his book of poetry. Ian said it was packed out. There's a video of it on YouTube, at one point, he stands to recite a poem called A Thousand Arrows, which ends with the line, A thousand arrows they fired at me, yet failed to kill the poet within. Before Sophie's murder, Ian complained of being lazy and being seen as a foolish bowsy. Now he's a published poet, a scholar. He's recognised. We didn't set out to tell Ian's story, and he warned us that it will run a run, one day he advised us to just pick a point and put a pin in it. More directing from the back seat, maybe. Or maybe he'd just finally grown tired of our questions. Up close at times like this, it can seem as if the case is speeding towards a resolution. But it's a long slog. It's been almost a year since Ian was arrested at Dublin Criminal Court. The Irish court did rule against his arrest, and the French are pushing ahead with a trial in his absence. But as of now, there's still no trial date. Ian's lawyers assure him that if he is convicted, he can appeal. But appeals aside, if Ian is tried in his absence in France and found guilty, the French government could only arrest him if he left Irish soil. So guilty in France, but free in Ireland. Ian told us he could live with that. Ian expects he'll die in West Cork, that the persecution won't ever end. And Pierre-Louis told an Irish reporter he'll fight to his last breath, for many years, Sophie's parents, George and Marguerite, would travel to West Cork to hold an anniversary mass and make appeals for new information. Now too weak to travel, it's down to Pierre-Louis to keep returning. He says you can't be defeated by how long things take, but it can't be easy turning up here year after year. I, I didn't choose Ireland, but Ireland changed my life forever. It's hard to, to live with this, but... Uh, I, I don't want to. I don't want to give up. For my children, Ireland is the place where my, my mother died. But before dying, uh, she loved this place. So it's like an heritage, and I have to give them. So, and it's a good place again. Well, it's a good place. We did see Pierre-Louis one last time, last summer, at O'Sullivan's pub in Crookhaven. O'Sullivan's was Sophie's favourite pub in West Cork. She came here that Sunday before she was murdered and chatted as usual to the owner, Billy O'Sullivan, the way her son and his family were doing now. Hello. 
What's your name? Aurelia. Aurelia, that's a lovely name. Isn't it? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> your name? Sophie. Sophie. Okay. Say hello, Sophie. Hello. <laughs> My name is Bill. I'm Bill. You, you know, it's it's been a long time since I've seen you. It is. You. It is. It is. Pierre-Louis remembers meeting Billy here as a 14-year-old on a trip with his mum. While his kids drank hot chocolate, Pierre-Louis and Billy caught up. They talked golf and fishing. Billy gave Pierre-Louis a lobster he caught earlier that day for the barbecue, and they agreed to meet up next summer and go out fishing together on Billy's boat. So, OK, next time. Next, next time. year. But if, I will call you, huh? if, if I'm alive, I'll be 80 oh, then. If you're not alive, I've been waiting for that for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> to someone at a nearby table, it might have sounded like idle chit-chat. Holidaymakers coming up with plans to while away a summer afternoon. But this is serious business. In Pierre-Louis' mind, his mother's killer still lives in West Cork. He masters anger and fear just to be here. There are constant reminders of the murder, the coat on the door, the cross in the driveway, the suspect in the supermarket. Every beach trip, every fishing expedition, is an act of defiance, a poke in the eye of the person who silenced his mother. Pierre-Louis is now approaching the age his mother was when she was murdered, and he's settled on a long fight. In a foreword to a French book on the case, he wrote that he wants those responsible for this denial of justice, those who continue to contribute to it, to let them come and explain the truth to my daughter. I will wait for them here by the fireplace. Justice is like a train. Even if the train is late, the train arrive in the right uh, station. So it's a matter of time. Well, it's, it's, uh, I need hope also. West Cork is an Audible original production, written and produced by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie. Produced and sound designed by Kristen Muller, Alex Trajano, Robin Wise and Paul Schneider. Our theme music was composed by Shani Avaram. Our recording engineer is Sean Moher. West Cork is edited by Mike Olive. Our fact checker is Christine Baird. And Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers. With additional production help by Olivia Natt, Mareka Peters and Stu Seidel. This series would not have been possible without Gabby Hornsby, Barry Roach, Jean-Antoine Bloch, Rory Sparks, Beverly C., John Curland, Norman Pratt, Vanessa Harris, Tommy Doyle, Jim Colgan, Breda Brennan, Muna Naja, Owen Davis, C103, Red FM and 96FM, and Muriel Ford. This is Audible. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.